Hi, all, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the amazing city of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and of course, with me is Troy Eller English. What up, Troy? Yo. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. How are you? What are your plans this summer? Are you going to go to the movies? I have not been to the movie theater since Downton Abbey came out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, folks, was it a disappointment in the movie? I mean, it made me happy because it was Downton Abbey. It okay. was certainly not the greatest. No, it made yeah. my wife happy very much as well. I was forced to go to it. I was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they're coming up with another one. They are, and I'm going to watch it. Oh, of course you are. <laughs> Of course. Now, yes. So anyway, the reason we're talking movies because, all right, Marvel and DC Comics, they come up with tons of movies, right? So today, folks, the reason I'm talking about this is that we have something a little different from our usual labor and urban history podcast interviews. This episode, we are talking about comic books. Now, I've always loved reading comic books as a kid, Batman, Superman, uh, Silver Surfer. And then I got into college, the independent comics like Hate and Love and Rockets and, of course, Weirdo Magazine. And I still read them. And also, you know, we all heard about the graphic novel Mouse, and that changed everything. And as I mentioned, Marvel and DC Comics, their universes and movies. So everything now, people understand what comics are. But what has always been missing for a long time was the black superheroes. I mean, we have Black Panther, Falcon, and Storm, but comics have always been a majority white world. And also, Detroit has been represented in comics, but as that urban ghetto and that stereotypical interpretation of our city. So this is why I was glad to talk to Vincent Haddad, who wrote an article in Inks called Detroit vs. Everybody, Including Superheroes, Representing Race Through Settings in DC Comics. Haddad is an assistant professor of English at Central State University in Ohio, who got his PhD from Wayne State University in 2016 in Literary and Cultural Studies and is working on a book about Detroit culture. In his essay, he focuses on Amazing Man in the 1980s series All-Star Squadron and Cyborg, uh, a solo series, in 2010. Uh, Detroit is the perfect setting to explore its historical and material conditions, especially the black experience about race, labor, and culture. Um, the comic book characters that we talk about deal with the racial issues in the 1940s with the Sojourn Truth housing conflict in Detroit, as well as focusing on what black lives were like in the cyborg character in the 2010s. And as with anything and everything, the onions started to peel away. We had a great conversation about comics in Detroit. I mean, I learned that in 1980, Amazing Man was the first DC comic black superhero. Cyborg lives in Detroit. Um, I only knew him from Teen Titans cartoon. Um, the first Justice League spinoff organization is based in Detroit and has several prominent black members. So there's more and more black superheroes arising, especially after Milestone Comics, the first African-American comic book line was created in the early 1990s by African-American artists and writers who had a vision to create a universe consisting of ethnically and sexually diverse characters for the millennial readers. And Milestone characters, the most famous is Static were set in Dakota City, which is based on Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland. It is a great conversation about the medium that we've always known as the forefront in its own ways of questioning our society and how we treat each other. That's how comic books and sci-fi has always been. Take, for example, Superman. In the early issues, he was fighting to protect immigrants, the poor, and solving real-world problems. 
Now, most people argue that comics are supposed to be escapism, to leave a time and point in our world, to escape it and live in a make-believe world. But we always take something with us when we enter that universe and come back. Neil Gaiman once said, once you've escaped, once you've come back, the world is not the same as when you left it. When you come back to it with skills, weapons, and knowledge you didn't have before, then you have better equipped to deal with your current reality. So enjoy the conversation. It's a lot of fun. And go support your local comic book store. Vincent, thanks so much for joining our podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Absolutely. All right. So first, let's just dive right in. What drew you, and this is pun intended, drew you into uh, writing an article about Detroit and how DC Comics represents this fair city? And um, if you can tell our listeners, listen, most of our listeners are labor historians, they're urban historians. Can you talk a bit about the DC universe in the context of using real cities? Yeah, absolutely. So I think like a lot of people who grew up in Metro Detroit, um, we tend to notice the the outsized role Detroit plays in pop culture. So whenever it comes up in sitcoms or horror movies and stuff like that, kind of like our antennae are perked and we're, you know, hyper aware of like, okay, how are they going to do it this time? Um, So when my son was uh, born and he wouldn't sleep, I did two things. I watched a lot of TV and I read a lot of superhero comics. Um, One of the shows I was watching at the time was Titans, which is a, it's a live action DC show on HBO max. And the first couple episodes, they take a lot of, they take place a lot in Michigan. Uh, They're bouncing back and forth between Traverse city and Detroit. And I found this funny for a couple of reasons, just being a comics reader for a long time. Um, The first was that, uh, you know, Detroit was just being used as like a simple substitute for a city in a fictional city in DC comics called blood Haven. Um, And so, and so when Dick Grayson, he's, he's, uh, he was the first Robin when he, when he gets older, he becomes Nightwing and he wants to leave Batman behind and Gotham behind. And so he goes to this, fictional town called city called Bloodhaven um, to kind of branch out on his own. And it's really just Gotham light um, essentially. So uh, it was kind of, this kind of made me laugh because it was like how to make a city called Bloodhaven even more scary while you just change, change it to Detroit. Um, and, and the other thing I found funny about it as I was watching was um, uh, it, it didn't look anything like Detroit. Um, uh, like the alleys didn't look like Detroit. The architecture didn't look like Detroit. They didn't even do any like passing shots of landmarks, like the Renaissance center, or, like the spirit of Detroit, like we're, we're pretty used to, um, a lot of these things, like to at least show some landmarks. So like almost no effort was made to actually, um, show the city of Detroit at all. So like, why not just call it Bloodhaven? Um, and, and, you know, essentially that's just incidental because Detroit sounds even scarier. Um, and it gave, gave, uh, the show like this immediate edgy credibility. Um, and the funny thing, and another funny thing about it was, um, you know, Detroit is a really important city in DC comics already, um, particularly as the home for, 
John Stewart. Um, he's a green. He's he's a Green Lantern, and Cyborg. Uh, later, he's retconned as being from the city of Detroit, and uh, so it was probably a little bit of like the the little sleep I was getting. But I decided that I was just gonna. I research, I looked it up a little bit, and no no one seemed to have deep deep dove deep dived. Um, uh, all of these comics wh- where Detroit is a setting in DC. So um, I decided that I was what, what I was going to do. I had a lot of time on my hands um, rocking the baby. So, so, and I wanted to see what I noticed. I mean, my hypothesis going in was that just like in Titans, um, Detroit was being used as a setting more for what it offered symbolically to the genre at hand, whether that was a horror movie or dystopia, or, uh, like a post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic story then that the story was going to engage deeply with the actual history of the city or the people that live there. Um, and this was often proven true, but the result was like with, with a medium like comics, a serial continuous serial narrative where a lot of artists and a lot of writers have their hand in the stories being told. Um, the use of Detroit was actually more complex and interesting than I suspected it was going to be when I got into these comics. And those are the two comics that I focus on in the article. So All-Star Squadron and Cyborg. There were examples that certainly use those flattened stereotypes. Um, so I started my, my search, I think, where if there are comics fans in your audience, they might have started the search, which was what I thought was going to be the most famous example of Detroit in DC Comics, which was issue 87 of Green Arrow, Green Lantern, which is the first appearance of Jon Stewart. Um, and this was really kind of perfect and it really just kind of like lit the fire and set, set me on this research agenda, which was, um, I was surprised to discover that in that issue, the comic, the, narr- the narrator asked the reader to quote, come with us to a certain urban ghetto. Like, yeah. like there, there is a certain place, there's a specific place that they're gesturing towards, but they're too embarrassed to name it. Yeah. And it wasn't until like years later that they filled it in as that was just always Detroit. Right. I mean, in the first issue, it's like snowing there. Um, or actually that's a Christmas issue. So it's like, what is a certain urban ghetto with that snows? So they, so it was like years later that they actually just fixed it as being Detroit, which is really kind of perfect, a perfect example of what I assume the city was being used for in the comics. Um but there are like All-Star Squadron, which uh, um, we'll talk about. Uh, I mean, that comic really like engages with the city's history really deeply. And uh, that that was a big surprise to me. It was a surprise to me as well. Um, All-Star Squadron um, came across Amazing Man. Um, in the comic, uh, they, they go back. The comic started in the early 80s, right? Yes. Yeah. So, but they took historical narratives and and, and exposed the the history. So they d- discover Amazing Man in 1942, and they're they're in Detroit looking for Nazi sympathizers. That was the big thing, right? Yeah. You know, looking for the Nazi sympathizers. And your issue, then their issue 38, um, deals with the racial conflict in Detroit and the soldier truth homes. This blew me away that they're actually talking about it in a comic and such a heavy topic to bring up. Um, can you give us the backdrop of the actual event as well as how it played out in the comic? Yeah, so I mean, so All Star Squadron is kind of um, you know comics are comics are always kind of self reflective and interested in nostalgia, I guess. And so in the eighties, this was like a reboot of these nineteen forties golden age heroes. Um, so you get like Alan Scott, Green Lantern and Dr. Fate. These are like the main characters. 
in this series. Um, so uh, I, I got to warn the audience that like anytime someone tries to actually summarize a superhero comic, they sound pretty ridiculous <laughs> uh, because these plots, like I'll, I'll do the best I can um, with Amazing Man. But uh, yeah, you're right. Like, like if you were not from Detroit or for, even like if you're from Detroit and you're not familiar with the history, all of these like pronouns, you know, it takes place in Paradise Valley, um, uh, the Sojourner Truth home riots. Uh, the villain's name is like the real American. And he has like a, a phantom empire, which is based on the Ku Klux Klan. All of this seems like stuff from a superhero comic more than it seems more than it maybe seemed, you know? So like, if you were not from Detroit, you might be reading this and actually not know that this is um, completely accurate history. All they did was add superheroes into mm -hmm. this story, which mm -hmm. is, which is, uh, I mean, it's really well, well done by Roy Thomas, the writer. Um, so uh, yeah, so like you said, um, we first meet Will Everett or Amazing Man in issue 23 of All-Star Squadron in the fashion that some of your listeners might be familiar with, with the first appearance of Black Panther, where the all white superheroes, they first believe him to, you know, if they, when they first see a costumed black man, they think he's a villain. Um, they fight him. Um, and in the process of fighting him, you learn what his powers are. So Dr. Fate and at and the Adam, they're returning from an adventure uh, to the tower of fate um, because they want to uh, get his original Dr. Fate's original helmet. Um, only when they come in, they discover that his wife, uh, Dr. Fate's wife, Inza, she's knocked over and she's like sprawled out on the ground. So already we kind of get this problematic trope of this um, vulnerable white woman who has been knocked over by a black man and they don't know what's happening. And she warns that he, you know, he stole the helmet and he's in the basement. So um, they run down, they fight Amazing Man. You will learn that Amazing Man, he can change into whatever material or element he's touching. So um He's, he's really kind of this cool character and he's like crafty enough to know that he could like become the bricks and get through the tower of fate, but he's too buffoonish, I guess, to realize that like, he can't pull the helmet back through the bricks. Right. And so he's trapped. And so um, this is why, why the heroes can kind of fight him. So eventually they, they knock him out and they put his hands on this like magic orb, which gets him to reveal his um, origin story. So the first appearance is not just a first appearance. It's also an origin story. And that's where we kind of learn, you know, he's from, he, he grew up in the South. Um, his family moved to, to Detroit to kind of escape racism. Um, uh, little, little did they know that they were going to um, have to deal with that considerably in the city of Detroit. Uh, his dad works in a car factory and is working uh, Will is like a track star and he gets to go to the 1936 uh, Berlin Olympics. And so he like him and Jesse Owens, they win gold medals and like rub Hitler's face. And that, that kind of fits with the, the ethos of that series a little bit. Um, and well, when he comes home, like the Detroit, like he makes a joke that the Detroit Tigers are not hiring any colored shortstops. And so um, he has to work as a janitor in a science lab and there are people some burglars come to try to steal this new technology, uh, but they also make the mistake of racially insulting Will. So he fights them, uh, ultimately gets captured and they do experiments on him. And they, that's how he gets his superpowers. Um, so uh, especially because he's coerced into telling the truth, I think that's kind of funny. Um, the reader and the heroes um, understand that Will is a sympathetic character, right? right. He was forced into doing this. 
they end up letting him go. Um, and so it's not until like 15 issues later where um, Roy Thomas, uh, they, they bring back Amazing Man um, in this three issue arc, issues 38 to 40, that are these Detroit issues. And these are the issues I, I really kind of focus on um, in the article. And so this is just like another time where the heroes are doing some adventuring and then they catch this newsreel footage of uh, Detroit and um, the Sojourner Truth home riots are, are um, happening. Um, for some of your listeners, this is like a, a really significant event in the, in the lead up to the 1943 racial uprisings in the city. Um, and they see there's a there's a black man who is um, he's he's taken by the Ku Klux Klan. He's tied to this cross and lit on fire. Um, and of course, they recognize this as as Will, and he becomes the metal of the chains uh, that they use to tie. They mistakenly use to tie him up to the cross. He becomes metal, and he beats up his oppressors. Um, uh, but then, uh, you know, he oh, eventually he's overwhelmed, and he's and he's taken to jail. So the All Star Squadron they decide they need to go to Detroit to to help Will um, uh, escape or or become free. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's kind of funny that this one thing that's funny about focusing on that series is that because Will's in jail, he's not the, really the main character of the, of those three issues. Um, it's really the message or the theme of those three issues is the white superheroes when they arrived at the city of Detroit, they have to learn the lesson that when they're like swooping into these riots, their instinct um, which is informed by their racial bias, their instinct is to, to like help the police um, and subdue like unruly black Detroiters. And, you know, they'll even say a couple of times, like we're, we're trying to do this for your own good. And they're like mm-hmm. um, helping, oh, they, they realize that they're helping imprison these people who are being victimized. Um, and that wasn't very heroic of them. So the, so the real story of those issues is, um, that, that the white superheroes learn how to be less, um, less biased. Right. Right. And that, that's, that was the main theme. And I appreciate the, the cards, the, the comics to approach that, especially in the eighties. I mean, yeah. it's, it's something that I've always admired about comic books and sci-fi. It, it really shows you know, racial equality in various ways. It shows the quality of sexes in various ways through the story. And that's why, that's why I've always read comic books and stuff like that. That's, it brings you closer into what actually is, needs to be done. So whatever happens to Amazing Man, and as you, as you put in your article, leaving, and as he mentions, leaving the hellhole. Yeah, so, uh, so in the conclusion of that, of that arc, we have um, we have this really great villain, which I think speaks to one of your points. The villain is um, his name is the Real American, and he is he kind of looks like Captain America, but with like a KKK hood on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that's surprised. I think a lot of times we're, we think like you know, um, as t- especially my students, they think like now we'll deal with issues that like they were afraid to deal with in the eighties or nineties. But it's really kind of intense to see this as like the villain is real American and like his language is very re- resonant with um, things we see in the news um, today. Right. Um, and so he's he's ginning up this bigotry and he's ginning up uh, the, these crowds of white folks to 
to really push Will's um, uh, execution. Uh, and ultimately, um, as they kind of figure out, uh, which is kind of like how the culpability is kind of dealt with in kind of a weird way in superhero comics, um, ultimately, he, it, it turns out he's a robot. Right. So um, where does where's the racism really like uh, and, the, and the robot, when people hear the voice of this robot, they become entranced. And so really like like who's really responsible? It turns out the monitor, like which is like this alien who's like who, who created this technology. Um, so anyway, so he um, so he gets he gets free. Um, he gets freed by the All-Star Squadron. But um, this is another kind of this is kind of speaks to the main one of the main theses of the article, which is. Um, because Detroit is this um, place where the comics can come and deal with the, these racial issues, um, once, he, once these issues are resolved, and they have to be resolved for this next thing to take place, because if they're not resolved, this next thing can't take place, then the Black superhero can gain admission to the broader superhero community or these like superhero teams, mm-hmm. right, and leave, Um and so all, and so, um, uh, amazing man, he gives us, he gives us closing kind of speech where, um, he, he, he says to, um, to the team, like I can do more for not just black people, but all people, um, by leaving Detroit and becoming part of the all-star squadron. So this is like true with John Stewart when, he, if he wants to join the green lantern Corps, he has to kind of resolve the racial issues, um, uh, uh, and that happens in Detroit. Um, Cyborg is the same thing. If he wants to join the, the Teen Titans or the Justice League, these things need to be resolved. And so Detroit is really the setting for issues of race. Um, it's Detroit is kind of like the serious sitcom episode. So like Carlton mm-hmm. buys a gun, um, and it's like so these issues are going to be like when when the real when the real issues can be represented, but then they need to be. Um, dealt with and then you can go punch some aliens in the face so (laughs) right uh, yeah so essentially he he has to leave and they all do except for cyborg in the next part but i was about to say you mentioned cyborg and you write about cyborg in your article um who is cyborg and what is different about this hero within the world of detroit yeah, so the specific cyborg I focus on is a series written by John Semper Jr. And this is in the mid-2010s uh, that this series um, was written. Um, cyborg is originally, he was originally like part of the Teen Titans. He wasn't from Detroit. He was from a place called Hell's Kitchen. It's kind of one of these like, that's like Bloodhaven. You just like switch it to Detroit later and it makes total sense, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, Jeff Johns, who's a writer who... Um, obviously has a big, big hand in DC comics. He's from, I believe he's from gross point. Um, and he is the one that in, in like 2008, 2010, that area, he, he rewrites cyborg as being from Detroit. Um, and he also writes cyborg as, as uh, like a principal member of the justice league. So people who've seen the movies, um, would recognize cyborg in that role. Um, so this uh, this version of Cyborg is, is different for a couple of reasons. That's why I focus on it. Um, uh, first of all, the r- racial diversity of the creative team behind the comic. So John Semper Jr. is African-American. Um, that Detroit is really embraced as the setting for the comic mm-hmm. is a big thing. And then obviously um, Detroit means meant something different in the 2010s as it did in the 1980s. So Detroit and mainstream media in, in this, I think when this, 
comic was kind of pitched and um, written was more like the comeback city where like the New York Times was like celebrating hope in the American dream with Detroit um, versus like the devil's night and arson city of the 1980s. Um, so <laughs> Detroit, there's like some positive affects that we that are brought to the city in that context, like the resiliency of the people um, uh, like made in Detroit is kind of like a slogan that we see pop up in, in um, uh, the comic and like, like Detroit, like cyborg being made in Detroit. This is really kind of key because um, you know, cyborg, he's, he's the character who's always struggling to, to understand if he's like, more machine than human he's always like wrestling with his humanity and detroit in this case is really leveraged to um uh connect cyborg with his humanity and his heroism by really tapping into the cultural history of black detroit specifically in the series the improvisation of jazz music is something that comes up a lot and then the other thing in that series that is kind of new new to see is you know, in the background of the panels, we see a lot of the landmarks, street names, the architecture, like it's taken seriously that it's set in Detroit. And part of this, I think, is, um, again, I think part of that's the racial diversity of the creative team. And then another thing is like the printing technology is completely different than the 1980s. Like in the 1980s, you see the backgrounds are like a lot of times they're just like one color, like blue or pink or something because right. they couldn't put all of the detail in. And in this and in this series, like Detroit is very much a principal character. Um, so you see a lot of stuff, which gets you kind of excited um, as a as a reader. Absolutely. And so Cyborg is, you know, mostly machine, half human, that kind of thing. And his technology yeah, and his, you could say his superpower is to, you know, scan people, basically, see if they're good or bad or evil, what's going on with them. And so, yeah. but you and then you mentioned this thing, this. The, the new Jim Crow of technology, which we yeah. all know the new Jim Crow book dealing with, you know, the prison industrial complex, but this, you bring in technology, a contradiction on cyborg. So can you explain what this new Jim Crow of technology is and talk about how it identifies with cyborg if you can? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I was leaning on um, Ruha Benjamin's concept that she develops in a book called race after technology. And it's, and it's what she calls the, the new Jim code. So she writes that the new Jim code is the employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequities, but they are, but that are promoted and perceived as more objective or progressive than the discriminatory systems of a previous era. And, um, you know, this is this cyborg piece series was written, I, I think in like 2015, 2016, and this has become a much larger issue um, in Detroit. Uh, you know, like the Detroit Will Breathe activist group um, has really done a lot of work in um, bringing this uh, to the forefront, which is, you know, the Detroit Police Department has started to adopt a lot of facial technique, uh, facial recognition technology. Um, and there are all these kind of algorithms used in policing and in sentencing. And there, a lot of work has been done to kind of show, you know, the racial bias in these technologies that are supposed to be even more objective. So in Cyborg, um, there's this really great scene in this in the series where um, he's walking on East Jefferson and Chalmers with his kind of mentor, this jazz musician named Blue. 
and he's doing what you described. He's he's like scanning every every person, especially these like these young hoodlums who are on the corner, um, and his and he's bringing up their police profiles, um, and it will and and it indicates to him their threat level, right? right. Um, and Blue is using this as an opportunity to explain to Cyborg that um, you know you really need to be part of the block. You need to you need to walk the block. It's kind of like a community policing kind of pitch to him. It's more important than what the technology tells you because to Blue, Blue is kind of saying you know these kids, despite what your technology says, these kids are they're good kids. They're they're, they're no they're no issue. And there's this um, then he you know Cyber kind of dismissed. He doesn't even bring up the profile to this um, sex worker who's working on the street. And Blue. Um, Blue points out that that's not a that's not really a sex worker. It's an undercover cop, and he says like I pity the John who um, hires her. Um, And so when Cyborg brings up her police profile, it it says it says no threat, right? Her threat assessment is zero, Um, which is which is interesting because the the very in the very next scene we get a scene where these two police officers they come and they kind of accost Cyborg because he gets in the way. Um, and he brings up their profiles and they are high, high threat level. Right. Um, and so ultimately the kind of the argument that I was making about that scene is it's really a scene that is making a bad apple, good apple um, argument about policing. Right. And, mm-hmm. and what cyborg, what cyborg offers is that he can tell the bad apples from the good apples. Right. So he can fix the problem. And the problem isn't really structural, um, so long as you have Cyborg there to use this technology, he, he is a superhero after all, and he can kind of assign um, threat level. And so, the I mean, the funny thing is, like, you know, was that undercover cop threat level zero to those three kids on the street? Right. Not, I mean, not really. It's kind of like an, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of a problematic setup, and it and it. You know, uh, Ruha Benjamin's concept of the new, new Jim Code really fits that because, you know, we, perce- we we can perceive that technology, especially with with Cyborg because he's a superhero, as being progressive and being a being a better replacement than these like racist police officers who accost Cyborg. But um, is it really? You know, when when the result of that scene is like that, Cyborg has no structural critique of policing whatsoever. It's just that he can tell who are the bad cops and who are the good cops, right? So, so really, it leaves the comic to be able to say very little about that problem. Uh, it's just that Cyborg is a solution. Yeah, it leads it, it leads to more questions and the onion exactly. peel. But it's, it's it's exactly it's the zeros and ones make the decision nowadays on the streets instead of actually have a beat cop. Who knows the neighborhood and knows those kids are good kids, but you know, they, they run into some problems, but they're all right. And having some undercover on there just for the couple days in and out, and she could cause problems on the block, right? We just don't know. So, but that's the beauty of the comic. It introduces all these things that we can really think about. And yeah, we're excited also that there are organizations that are questioning this throughout the country about that. So now we always like at the end of our show to ask our researchers what collections they've used at the Ruther Library and other kind of things to help them formulate their research. Now, we are living in the pandemic age. So when you're writing this, I mean, you couldn't come to the Ruther. 
but you you accessed us online, which a lot of researchers are doing. So just let us know which ones you tapped into and what are your next plans for this article? This is a great article. I mean, you take a deep dive. So I'm curious to see what the next steps are. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I went to... I went to grad school at Wayne State. I got my PhD from Wayne State. Um, I now am a professor, an English professor at Central State University. It's a, it's a HBCU. I think it's the closest HBCU to the city of Detroit. Uh, it's just outside of Dayton. Um, so um, you're right that I, you know, I didn't, I didn't come to the Ruther Library, but I had been there um, as a grad student several times, and um, it from it, with with class with grad classes. And I knew from a project I had to do in grad school that you guys had a really great image gallery online. And so when I, um, I got, man, I got so lucky with this project, um, finding what turned out to be like, like the exact image reference that the artists were using in these comics. Um, and it happened with Cyborg and it happened with All-Star Squadron. So, um, I went, I went to, I just knew to go to the Ruther right away, um, which is uh, maybe not what a lot of your listeners might, might have done, but, um, and I just kind of looked up Sojourner Truth Home Riots and I was looking through the pictures of that. Um, And in the comic, uh, the comic actually like reproduces these, like these handbills and these posters directly from the historical record right into the superhero story. So like one of the, I include this image in the, in the article but there were a couple that I could have um, where one of the heroes firebrand, she's reading a flyer titled help the white people. And you can see all the text on this flyer. It's, it's quite lengthy. And I wrongly assumed that was an invention of, uh, of the writer and the villainous real American that I talked about um, because I mean, the, the, the handle is pretty preposterous. Yeah. And, and when I was looking through the Ruther, like, what, do, what, do, what do you know? But like, you know, they have the image of this, like the facts of the uh, uh, Xerox copy of um, that exact handbill that the artist was was working from and including. And you see that like um, uh, other times in the comic, there's, you know, there, when um, uh, Amazing Man is on the burning cross, there's like a post, there's like, like two guys standing in front of this uh, banner. And, it, and I think it says um, whites only or um I forget exactly what the language is, but that's another image that comes directly from um, an image that you can, you can see in the Ruther um, uh, uh, archives. And so, yeah, that was like really important to me to realize like to the extent to which the comic was engaging directly with this historical record. Um, And, you know, uh, obviously that image gallery, the online image gallery didn't exist in the eighties. Um, when they were writing this, but uh, it's something like that. I, I don't know how they got access to that stuff, but I don't, yeah, um, I don't know. That's pretty I, cool. But <laughs> it, was, it was literally these like couple images that you guys have from, um, you know, probably the free press or, or whatever, but um, it was really kind of amazing to see. Um, as to what I'm, what I'm working on now is um, I, um, so I'm setting the superheroes aside a little bit for my, for a project on Detroit. I, I'm always writing about superheroes and you can kind of find stuff I've written on superheroes online. Um, but what I've started working on is a, is a book about um, especially the ways that the, that some recent black writers in the city of Detroit have started to experiment on the genres that have been consistently used to tell stories about the city of Detroit. Um, 
and kind of analyze those. So, um, uh, Angela Florinoy's The Turner House, that plays with the concept of the haunted house during Detroit's foreclosure crisis. Adrian Marie Brown's Grievers is about like a pandemic apocalypse. She just wrote that book, um, kind of in some semi-inspired by COVID-19. Um, but the, the virus in that book, it only targets and further dispossesses the Detroit's Black residents. Um, Stephen Mac Jones's August Snow novel series is an example of crime fiction right. at, at, aimed at challenging white supremacist ideologies of Black criminality. And then there's another new new book by Alice Randall called Black Bottom Saints, um, which I strongly, strongly recommend, especially for your listeners, because they're very interested in history. Um, so that adapts this novelization of Detroit's history from a Roman Catholic saint book. And it's really fantastic. So um, so uh, in that project, I'm, like as I address each of those genres, I, I look at how pop culture has kind of use those genres in the past. So, um, you know, with like RoboCop or um, other kind of like It Follows uh, horror movie set in the suburbs. Um, and then I kind of look at how these writers are experimenting with those genres and kind of um, trying to use the concept of genre to say something different about the city than has been kind of said in these superhero stories or other kind of pop culture. That's pretty cool. And as always, you know where to find some historical narratives and some yeah. historical graphics. Here at the Ruther, we're <laughs> open again. We're taking people back in so you can visit anytime. Hey, thanks for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot about superheroes that I didn't know before about Detroit and can't wait to start digging in and looking for them. Thanks a lot, Vincent. Thank you. <laughs> Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. You've been here. Way too long. Since the Stone Ages. Yes, I have. <laughs> very, very long time. There are cave paintings in your cubicle. <laughs> That's why I expanded, because I was losing room. <laughs> Um, with my cave paintings, thank you very much. You're welcome. And my um, my my lovely uh, pencils are losing room, so <laughs> dating back to the beginning of time for pencils. <laughs> my ceiling. Wednesday called me Goldner. Yeah. On my fifteenth anniversary ah. working here, I went and got my 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 little tag and it said Daniel Goldner <laughs> and I got it I didn't even get a pledge pin I didn't get anything oh well they used to send that catalog mm-hmm. and you get to pick cheap jewelry you don't get the catalog anymore I haven't seen the catalog in a long time and I passed my 20 <sighs> maybe they send it to because five, I'm ten. coming up on 15 years 
Yeah, Where's my for, catalog? <laughs> you should, because you can get some cheap, beautiful, I need fake some, diamonds. I need some tat. <laughs> <laughs>